right? Beautiful song. And I'm going to ask the praise team, if they would, to close out our service today. Can we do that with that song? He said, okay. So we're, we're going with it. <laughs> Nothing like being asked in public in front of everybody. Uh, a couple of little housekeeping things. Uh, next Sunday, we have our vote for church officers. And so know that those ballots will be being passed around, and we'll have a silent ballot. So you fill it out and then put it in a box at the back. Um, also, uh, next Sunday, we will have a guest speaker here. Uh, his name is Wayne Noggle, and Wayne was Kenny's former youth pastor at Loganville First Baptist, who now heads up uh, Faith for Families, which is a foster care ministry here in the state of Georgia. And he'll be coming to share with us a little about, a bit about their ministry and about how God wants to, uh, how God is working through that. So um, how we can partner with that ministry as well. So we'll look forward to Wayne being here and being a part of things next week. We are in a series walking through the book of Romans. Uh, today we come to Romans chapter 11, which is part of a larger unit within the letter, uh, and that unit extends from chapters 9, 10, and 11. Let me give you just a little bit of background to bring us all up to speed with where we've been. Uh, Romans chapter 9, in Romans chapter 9, Paul asked the question, why have the Jewish people rejected Jesus? Um, it seems kind of odd that Jesus, who was Jewish, right, Jesus, who was Jewish, and who was the fulfillment of everything the Jewish people had been looking for, uh, that the Jewish people rejected him. Um, and so Paul's asking that question in Romans chapter 9. He comes up with three responses to that, or three answers to the question of why they rejected Jesus. The first of those is that, hey, look, not everybody who's born in Israel, not everybody who has Jerusalem, Israel on their birth certificate is a child of God. Not all of ethnic Israel are children of God anyhow. Uh, second of all, he says, look, it's God's prerogative to show mercy where God wants to show mercy. And then finally, he says, look, this actual, the rejection of the Jewish people was predicted in scriptures, so it should not surprise us. Um, and then he, in chapter 10, he turns his attention to the question of how does a Jewish person get to heaven? And he begins in chapter 9 and verse 30 talking about how the Jewish people pursued righteousness, that is to pursue a right standing with God, trying to become pure and blameless in his sight by observing the law, by human performance, by doing the right things. And Paul says, uh, look, there's one way to get to heaven, and that way is through Jesus Christ. And the Jewish people couldn't accomplish it through human performance. They couldn't ever be perfect enough. They couldn't ever be perfect. It was an impossibility. The one way that you get to heaven is by confessing Jesus with your mouth and believing your heart that God raised him from the dead. He says, and you'll be saved. That's Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. There's not some alternative plan for the Jewish people to get to heaven. Uh, Paul says it's through Jesus. And that brings us to Romans chapter 11, where Paul raises the question of, has God rejected the Jewish people? If the Jewish people have rejected God, back in Romans chapter 9, and we see that God doesn't have some sort of alternative plan for the Jewish people, and they just keep rejecting, and it's through Jesus, and they just keep rejecting Jesus, then can we draw a line of conclusion between, well, then has God moved on from the Jewish people? If they seem so cold and so distant and so hardened, to any discussion about Jesus as their Messiah, then is it possible that God has just said, all right, well, bye-bye, I'm out of here. And so Paul raises that issue. Our text for today that we'll be standing to read, I'm going to ask if you would go ahead and stand to your feet, is Romans chapter 11, the end of the chapter, verses 33 through 36. This is kind of a doxology here at the end of all of Paul's teaching, which we'll get to here in a moment. And so this is how he expresses himself after doing all this teaching. Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33. Here we go. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who knows the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him 
are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. All right, we're going to work our way toward the end of the chapter. This is a lot to bite off. This is like taking a steak and trying to take one big giant bite and eat it all in one. I had a friend in college, I don't know if I ever told you about this, but he, had, he could like almost seem like he could dislocate his jaw. And his thing to do in the cafeteria when we get a big crowd up was he could eat an apple in two bites. <laughs> Remarkable. So that's kind of what we're doing today with Romans chapter 11, trying to cover this whole chapter. So let's dive in here. Romans chapter, I know you're worried, you're wondering how he could possibly do that, but anyhow. Uh, Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, beginning of the chapter. Paul asked that question. I asked then, has God rejected his people? Uh, in other words, can I draw the conclusion between the rejection of the Jewish people by, of Jesus and that there's, still, there's only one way, there's no alternative way for them to get to heaven, and they're, they're just saying we don't want to have anything to do with that. Is God then moved on from the Jewish people? And Paul's response to that is by no means. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Are you out of your mind? Paul says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying, hello, hello, I'm Jewish, <laughs> right? And if God had moved on from the Jewish people, then how is it that I stand before you today confessing Jesus as my Lord? God has not moved on from the Jewish people, and I'm exhibit A of that fact. Verse 5. Rather, let me tell you what's going on here, Paul says. He says what's going on is at the present time, at Paul's time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, Paul taps into the Old Testament concept of remnant here. The Old Testament concept of remnant was that a faithful group of Israelites remained true to the Lord while many of their fellow countrymen had abandoned the faith of Abraham. So a lot of the Jewish people at times in the Old Testament had abandoned God, had abandoned the faith, but there was a remnant. There was a faithful group of people. And Paul looks at one of the for instances of this back in chapter verse 3, chapter 11 and verse 3, where he points out how Elijah was feeling this way. He was looking around wondering if he was the last of the last of the last. He says, Lord, your people have killed your prophets. Paul's quoting here from the Old Testament. Your people have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And so Elijah's kind of surveying the landscape, and he's looking around, and he's not seeing anybody else standing up for God. He's not seeing anybody else in Israel except himself. He feels like he's a man standing alone on an island, and that there's nobody else around him that is interested in uh, pursuing the faith of Abraham. And God points out to him, here's God's response, verse 4, but what is God's reply to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, hey, Elijah, you're not alone. There are others. Uh, you may not see them, but they are there, and I know that they are there. In fact, there's 7,000 of them that I have kept unto myself, a remnant, he calls them. Paul is using this as a parallel, this occasion in the Old Testament, as a parallel of his own present situation, that there are faithful Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, um, who have repented of their sins to him, have embraced him as their Messiah, and Paul is calling that group of Jewish people a remnant. The remnant, he says, there are others of us out there. Paul says of this group, end of verse 5, that they are chosen by grace. That word chosen gives the notion that certain individuals were selected or handpicked by God. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks, the concept of a limited election, that this is not God's normal practice of salvation, that this is only in certain circumstances at certain points in human history where God's broader reaching 
salvific plans are in view. Plus, we can add into that concept the prescience theory. Got a slide for that of that for you here. The prescience theory, theory says that God's selection of people to salvation in human history for the purposes of the broader plan of salvation is uh, not based in God's sovereignty, but rather that, that God's some puppeteer that's up there just pulling the strings and causing people to make decisions for him, but rather that God's election of people or selection of people is based in his foreknowledge that god knows that if i go and present the gospel here or i go and give mercy to this person here that they will respond back to me in the affirmative that they will receive this gospel they will receive this truth that i'm presenting to them and so it's to those people that god comes and brings the gospel that god comes and shows his mercy again this is not god's normal practice of salvation and that's why we teach a concept of limited election so we can say broadly that Paul sees the Jewish people of it. That's just a little bit of review from a week ago, so maybe some of the neurons are starting to come back on that. Um, so we can say broadly that Paul sees the Jewish people of his day who have come to faith in Jesus Christ as elect, as persons chosen by grace for salvation. God has assured a remnant of believing Jews for himself. And Paul confirms this. He says in verse 7, what then? What, what conclusion should we draw from this? I've, pr- I've presented to you that, that we, these Jewish people who have become believers in Christ are a remnant that God is retaining unto himself through this difficult period where a lot of the Jews are rejecting Jesus. What are we to conclude of all this, he says? We can conclude that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And again, what was Israel seeking? Going back to the former chapter, they were seeking righteousness. They were trying to become right in God's eyes. They were trying to become blameless before a pure and perfect and holy God. And they failed in their attempts. It was impossible for them to live a perfect life. Only one person ever lived a perfect life, and he left the earth 2,000 years ago. Uh, And so Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, righteousness before God. He says, but the elect did. The remnant, the Jewish remnant, hold this into context. Paul, when he says says here the elect, he is not referring to somebody 2,000 years off into the future. Hold it in the context of the passage. He's referring to this remnant, this faithful group of Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ that God is holding for himself. Um, he says the elect obtained it, but the rest uh, did not. Um, they were hardened, he says. Uh, really important that, that we understand uh, that the elect in that passage is not referring to somebody off into the future, but hold it in the context. He's referring to that remnant. That's who the elect is. The word hardened, let's talk about that a little bit. It's, and I got a, def, a slide for you here on that. Uh, so he's talking about the rest of the Jewish people. So there's, there's this remnant of Jewish people. He calls them the elect. But the rest of them, he says, were hardened. Um, hardening refers to when someone rebels against God's will, and rather than impose judgment on them immediately, which is what they deserve, God stays his hand. He holds off judgment until a future time when he's ready to unleash Um, And so hardening has nothing to do with, please don't miss this, hardening has nothing to do with God barring someone from heaven. You follow me? God hasn't hardened someone's heart and then it's just over for them and they'll never be able to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Because we can look at the Apostle Paul as an example of this. The Apostle Paul exhibited all the fruits of a hardened heart, didn't he? I mean, he, was, he declared Jesus as enemy number one. 
Paul was running around the countryside throwing Christians in jail. Paul's heart was as hard as it could possibly, and calloused over as it could possibly be toward any discussion about Jesus. And yet, the apostle Paul, his heart was melted, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ despite that. So just because somebody's hardened, just because the Jewish people's hardened, heart was hardened, doesn't mean that they were, it was impossible for them to overcome that. It doesn't mean that God had withdrawn the offer of salvation from them. That's not what's going on here. A hardening is a period of time in which God stays his judgment until a later time. Uh, now, the purpose of this hardening uh, is where Paul goes with the rest of the letter, beginning at verse 11. So let's take a look at that. The purpose, what's, what is, why is all this hardening happening? And so Paul begins to address that beginning at verse 11. He says, so I ask, did they, referring to the Jewish people who had refused Jesus, did they stumble in order that God might watch them fall? In other words, did God, uh, this hardening that's happened, did God cause this just so that he could make sure that they ended up going splat and, making it, and, and not making it into heaven? Is that why God does this? Paul says, by no means. The purpose of their rejection of Jesus in this hardening season is that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So there's the reason for the hardening of the Jewish people's heart in the first century. Is that so through their trespass, through their rejection of Jesus as Lord, the Gentile, more Gentiles would come into the faith. Now let me kind of explain a little bit of what Paul's reasoning is here. Paul recognizes that if the Jewish people by and large had accepted Jesus early on, and, and the Jewish people responded uh, in the affirmative to the gospel. The onlooking world would have seen in the first century that Christianity was just a Jewish thing. That Christianity was just something that, that's just what Jews do, it's just what Jews believe. And I'm not, I'm not Jewish, so I guess that's not for me. And so what Paul is pointing out here is that the rejection of the Jewish people, the rebellion of the Jewish people, their disinterest in the gospel actually led to the gospel going outside of the borders of national Israel and becoming a global movement. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. You didn't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. But it was something for everybody. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing to there. Um, Paul repeats this strategy again in uh, verse 25. He writes... Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. I want you to know why this is happening. He says in verse 25, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He's saying there that Israel's rejection of Jesus has resulted again in Jesus spreading beyond the borders of national Israel. Uh, this partial hardening of Israel has resulted in Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people outside of national Israel, non-ethnic Jews, that they've now come into uh, this family of God. Um, and then he says that this partial hardening uh, resulting in that, and then he says the last phrase, how long this hardening of Israel lasts. Still in verse 25, Paul says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, at this point, Theologians diverge as to the meaning of what's happening here. Um, there's four kind of main views or main points. One of them is not worth us considering here. And so I'll share with you three of the views that are out there uh, when it comes to what is meant by the fullness of the Gentiles. 
And then uh, the next statement, if we go ahead and look at verse 26, uh, the next statement where it says, in this way all Israel will be saved. And so there's some debate over who is all Israel. Is this all of ethnic Israel? Is this him just referring to the spiritual children of God, the spiritual Israel? Uh, Is he referring to just Israel of the first century? Who is he referring to? Um, So let me just kind of, let me do my best. This is a... This is some crazy stuff. You're getting ready to go to seminary class, so let's just hang with me, all right? So um, we got our first slide here shows a biblical timeline of human history. And you can see at the beginning of this timeline, you have creation, and then you have the fall. That is when Adam and Eve sinned and changed the scope of everything uh, moving forward. Um, in this, there are two ages, according to the Bible, in, in a biblical worldview. The first, is, the first age is the age of the law. Um, the second age is the age of the Spirit, or the church age. That's the age that we live in now. The first age was the age of law, and that was the Old Testament period of human history. That's when uh, you know, the prophets lived. That's when the patriarchs lived. Um, and the part of the Godhead that was most active here on planet Earth during that period was God the Father. You have three parts of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the part of the Godhead that dwelt or tabernacled, that term tabernacle is a Hebrew term that literally means dwelt or, or as a verb, uh, it means that, that you dwelt. And so the part of the Godhead that dwelt or tabernacled here on the earth was the Father. He was in the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle, inside the, later the temple. And, he, and God the Father came down and he rested on top of those two cherubim on top of the ark that Indiana Jones was looking for. Okay? And so uh, that's where he was. And so the other parts of the Godhead were off into heaven. Uh, but that's where God the Father came. And so you get to the age, the age of the Spirit uh, the church age in which we now live, there's a little overlap between the end of the one and the beginning of the other. And the part of the Godhead that was here present on the planet during that period of time was God the Son, that is Jesus Christ. It's God in the flesh. Um, the Bible says, John chapter 1 and verse 14, that the Word became flesh and skenud is the Greek term, which is a translation from the Hebrew term tabernacle. In our English it says, and dwelt. Same word, same concept. And he dwelt among us. Um, when you get to the church age, the age in which we now live, that's moving toward a conclusion. This is what the Bible teaches. And we would refer to that as the end of time. And so when you're reading through your Bible, sometimes you'll read them talking about the end. Well, sometimes you have, you have to stop and ask yourself, were they talking about the end of the first age or are they talking about the end of the second age? Are they talking about the end of the old age of the law or are they talking about the end of time? And so you've got to kind of uh, work with that. Now, here's where these three views of all in Romans chapter 11 come in play. Let's take a look at the first of those, which is the premillennial view of, uh, of time. The premillennial view of time, that's kind of I, what I did here is I just blew up the end of the, the, big, the big picture that you looked at. So this is kind of the end of it, so we can kind of see it. Um, the premillennial view sees the return of Christ preceding a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ from Jerusalem. So premillennial view of the end times uh, says that Christ is going to return, he's going to gather his church into himself, and that there will be a thousand years from, that Christ will reign from Jerusalem, and that the kingdom of God will have come in all of its fullness. Um, that's the premillennial view. And that during that period of after the return of Christ, there will be mass conversions of Jewish people, Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, that all Israel will be saved. There will be mass conversions of Jewish people during that 
1,000 years. And then finally, after 1,000 years is done, uh, it'll come the end of time, and there'll be the final judgment. So they would also see the fullness of the Gentiles in verse 25 as having um, been achieved with the return of Christ. That all the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people who are going to come in, finally got the right number, finally got the most people that God's, you know, that, that's it, we're done here, and then Christ will return. So that's, that, that's the premillennial view of verses 25 and 26 there in Romans chapter 11. The second view is the postmillennial view. The postmillennial view, like the next view that we'll see, doesn't look at, well, no, that's not quite true. Well, yeah, doesn't really look at the thousand-year reign as a literal thousand years. Um, postmillennial, a, a little, well, it depends on who you're talking. It's crazy. Things just get all, they spider out all over the place. So some postmillennials will say, no, no, there's really a literal thousand years. Some will say, well, no, it's, it's allegorical. Um, but the postmillennial view has a very optimistic view of the future. And it sees a time when Christianity will become globalized and where Christianity will become the dominant uh, force, the dominant perspective, the dominant uh, faith worldwide, and that world peace will be achieved and all these sorts of things that go along with the reign of Christ and, and the kingdom of God coming into the world and hunger will be no more. And it won't be, it won't be the Garden of Eden, but it'll be heading in that direction. And so that's the post-millennial view. And it also sees, moving toward the end of time, the, a mass uh, number of Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Again, looking at Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, that in this way all Israel will be saved. And so they see that all of ethnic Israel is going to turn their hearts toward Christ uh, leading up to the end of time. So that's a post-millennial view. So I call that the golden age of Christianity. And that, that, that's still forthcoming. Perhaps we're living in that right now, moving, moving toward it. I don't know. All right, so the last view that I want to share with you is the amillennial view. And the, the word, the prefix A literally means no. And so the amillennial view is saying that there's no millennium. The amillennial view views the thousand-year reign of Christ or the thousand years of the kingdom of God as an allegorical statement. Um, they would, these people would cite, uh, I think it's Psalm chapter 54. Don't quote me on that. But where the psalmist David says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hillsides. Well, does God only own the cattle on a thousand hillsides? No. In Hebrew, that term thousand is a word that talks about completion. It's, in, it's saying that God owns completely everything. And so they would see that the thousand-year reign of Christ is just reporting, re, reporting that when the, when the time is right, when things are complete, uh, that then Christ will return. So the amillennial view doesn't see a golden age of Christianity, and it also sees no mass conversion of Jewish people at the end of time. Again, spiderweb out, some amillennialists do, but most don't. So let me just, one more slide for you here. We're going to zero in back on that overlap period between the two ages. The amillennial view would see the fullness of the Gentiles as having been achieved or the, the meaning of that statement, as having been achieved in, by 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. And that this partial hardening of Israel is completed, is done, at the destruction of Jerusalem. So it sees that little window of time between when Christ ascended around 33 A.D. until 70 A.D. as that window where there's this partial hardening of the Jewish people. Perhaps there were mass conversions of Jewish people in the first century. 
Um, we know that there was a remnant for sure. One of the things that amillennialists will point to is Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 23. Uh, this is Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the city that he's looking at. He's standing on the Mount of Olives. He's looking down across the Kidron Valley. There's the temple right in front of him. And he's talking about the destruction of that temple. Um, he says, verse 23, If anyone says to you in that day, when the temple gets to be destroyed, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Don't believe it. Verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, the who? The elect. And who does Paul define the elect as? The remnant of Jewish people. Also quoting from Jesus in that same passage of Scripture, verse 22, he says, But for the sake of the elect, verse 31, so on his mind is this remnant of Jewish people. Verse 31, he's warning them about this destruction of Jerusalem that's coming. They will gather up his elect from the four winds. And in the amillennialist, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm just standing up here in my, in my thought. Um, the amillennialist uh, posits or or considers that the partial hardening of Israel ended with the destruction of Jerusalem um, and that God's judgment was finally unleashed. You say, well, Gordon, how does that account for the Jewish people still rejecting Jesus today? Well, the amillennialists would see the Jewish people just like any people who reject Jesus. They would look at NBA basketball players or they would look at, sorry, I don't know if anybody's an NBA fan, at, at Russian mafia or they would see you know, a, a, a Buddhist teacher or they would see a, a Muslim a shop worker or a Jewish a store clerk, all is in the same boat. That they're all rejecting Jesus. They're all rebellious of Jesus. And so this is not a hardening of the Jewish people per se in our day. It's just what you see across the board of people who are not interested in the gospel. And so those people need to be evangelized. You say, well, Gordon, what do you think? What point of view do you give? Well, I'm going to leave that up to you to decide uh, where, you want, where you want to fall. Um, but those are some things to think about, and that's how this text is handled by, uh, by theologians. Um, I, I could talk for an hour. I really could. Uh, more, an hour more, not just including the time. But anyhow, I, I imagine y'all are ready to be done with the seminary class for a little bit, uh, thinking about. And so that brings it time for us to ask our most important question. The question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Ah, Gordon, I appreciate that question. You know, because all I hear this morning is a whole bunch of theory, right? I hear a whole bunch of uh, people trying to pull, you know, stuff out of the air, and, and who knows who's right and who knows who's wrong, and, and this stuff's obviously been debated by theologians, and they've written books on this and dissertations on this, and they've gone to forums, and they've debated one another back and forth. But I mean, I need help tomorrow morning, Right? I got kids to feed to get off to school. I've got work waiting on me. What difference does any of this make to my life? Um, well, that's a really great question. Uh, let's see if we can answer that. Two things. First of all, uh, when I was eight years old, I knelt down at my bedside with my dad, and I accepted Jesus into my life. Um, I knew that I had a sin problem that I could not fix, and I knew Jesus was the solution to that sin problem. And so we knelt down, and he led me in a prayer, and I received Jesus into my life. I don't know that I've ever told you all this before, but what sparked me wanting to pray that prayer was I had been at church earlier that evening, and they had showed a video that depicted a premillennial view of the end. Uh, there was this 
rapture where Jesus uh, didn't return yet, and, and, but, but people left the earth. They just vanished like pilots of planes just disappeared, and the guy driving the bus just disappeared, and you know the person that was standing next to you in the line at Walmart was just gone. And it was this, con- this concept of a rapture. Um, and then this tribulation period that would follow where the church would be, you know, people, there's a lot of persecution, it was really difficult. And honestly, I was scared because I saw in this little movie Jesus coming back and I wasn't ready. And I knew what that meant. I had a sin problem. And that unless I got that sin problem fixed, I was going to spend an eternity apart from God. And uh, I'm thankful, honestly, for the fear of that. Made it very real to me. And so if you're here this morning, you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The Bible is saying to you that you are not saved. You know, when you look at all those different views, the premillennial view, the postmillennial view, the amillennial view, there's one thing that they all are in absolute agreement about, and it's taught throughout Scripture, is that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And friends, if you have not repented of your sins and turned to him for the forgiveness of those sins, you are not safe. And he could come right now. We don't know. We don't know when that moment's going to be. So my question to you is, are you ready? So in just a little while, we're going to give you an opportunity to be ready and to respond. Something for you to think about. The second difference that this makes is to look at how Paul responds to this mystery. He says, Romans chapter 11, going back to what we read at the beginning. Again, this is kind of a doxology. He's given all this teaching. And then he comes to verse 33 and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul's just in awe. I mean, he's just spelled out all this stuff. The Holy Spirit's been working in his life. He's been helping him write this stuff. Paul's just in awe that God sees all this, is in control of all this. He says, how unsearchable. I'm just, I've become made aware how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. He says, verse 34, quoting from the Old Testament, for who has known, right? Who's known the mind of God? Nobody has. It's a rhetorical question. Or who has been God's counselor? Who did God have to go to to get advice on what to do? Paul says nobody's ever had to do that. God's never had to do that. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that God might be repaid? Verse 30, or that that person might be repaid. Verse 36, for from him, that is to God, and through God and to God are all things to him glory to him be glory forever amen you know sometimes when i get in over my head and i sometimes get in over my head kind of like biting off Romans chapter 11 you know the thing that i need to do is to step back and marvel just for a few moments at the god that i serve he is the creator of the universe he sees the end from the beginning and there is nothing that i am going through right now that this great god is surprised by 
He's not shocked. He knew what was coming. You know, Paul had dozens of things. He could probably list off hundreds of things that he could be worried and stressed out about. Things that could have caused his emotions and his heart to just be unraveled. And sometimes it is. But when he stops and he considers and he marvels at the greatness of the God that he serves, friends, he could find peace, he could find joy, hope returned. And so, if you're feeling frazzled, I'd encourage you to sit down with this text and just read Romans 11, 33 through 36. And find what the Apostle Paul found. A restored peace. And a restored joy. And a restored hope. And then you can join him in saying, to God be the glory forever. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, for your great love. We thank you that you have made a way for us to come to you to find forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, with our heads bowed now and our eyes closed, if there be any here today who want to pray to receive you into their life, to have the assurance that when you come, they're ready. You just pray these words after me, silently to, your, to the Lord where you sit. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I'm in trouble if I don't get that taken care of. I recognize that you died on the cross and that your blood spilt, paid the price so that I wouldn't have to. Jesus, Forgive me for all of my wrong. Wash me over. Flood me with that freedom that comes from knowing that I now have right standing with the Father in heaven. Give me assurance in my heart that as I walk out of this place today, I am a child of God. Thank you, Jesus for doing that for me. I will never be the same. God, we give you this space. We ask as we turn toward this table to be reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body. Lord, that we would just be able with Paul to say to you be the glory. Work in our hearts, we pray, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name.
story of redemption written on his hands jesus you will reign forevermore the victory is yours we sing your praise in this hallelujahs to your holy name jesus you will reign sacrifice for every sin our Savior died the Lord of life can be contained our God has risen from the grave sing our God has risen from the grave behold the lamb the story of redemption written on his hands jesus you will reign forevermore the victory is yours we sing your praise in King of kings. 